Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia and Focus newsletter. For the first time, a president of the United States has sat down at a table with the five Central Asian presidents to discuss relations. Therefore, the September 19th C5 plus one summit on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in New York was notable simply because it happened. For more than three decades, the United States has played a big part in events in Central Asia, including stationing troops in some of the Central Asian countries during the U.S.-led operations south of the Central Asian border in Afghanistan. Security in Afghanistan were part of the agenda when U.S. President Joe Biden met with his Central Asian counterparts, but there were other matters that seemed equally or more important in the discussions in New York. What is the state of U.S.-Central relations now? And did the summit give us any idea which direction those ties are headed? To discuss all this, I am joined by three guests who have long and distinguished careers in the U.S. government, and if I read their bios, we would use up almost all the time on the program. So I will simply introduce them as Laura Kennedy, former U.S. Ambassador to Turkmenistan, Eileen Malloy, former U.S. Ambassador to Kyrgyzstan, and William Courtney, former U.S. Ambassador to Kazakhstan. Thank you all for joining me, and allow me to add that, that none of my guests are speaking on behalf of the U.S. government. The opinions expressed on this program are their own opinions. So. I'd like to start out by just getting your impressions of this summit, you know, the first first ever C5 plus one summit. Um, and we'll start with you, Ambassador Kennedy. We'll just go in alphabetical order here. Okay. Uh, well, I think all of us uh, on this podcast, this is something we've long uh, hoped for. Uh, but it builds on, as you said, Bruce, decades of deep uh, U.S. involvement. But indeed, I share the excitement of members of the administration who, who you know, briefed a bit publicly uh, the Assistant Secretary Don Liu, and talking about an inflection point. The statements themselves talked about, you know, a consequential new chapter. So sure, you know, I don't want to get too carried away, but I will say that there's three big new deliverables. Um, and it caps, um, uh, you know, I think five different ministerials um, in the last two years. We'll have another one um, with uh, Samantha Power in October. And there's a whole host of other things on Excited about. Look at our ambassadors there now. We've we've developed a real cadre of uh, expertise on Central Asia. We have an assistant secretary who's steeped in the area. We have a president who said he doesn't have uh, much experience in the area. He's uh, direct. He's never visited there. But he ended his comments by saying uh, he hoped to see. Uh, uh, the leaders again, um, and uh, he said soon. And he said, uh, uh, you know, ideally in the region. Maybe that's a little bit of teaser, but anyhow, I think uh, personally, I'm very excited about uh, this development. Okay, thank you, uh, Ambassador Courtney. I'm sorry, I said I would do, go in alphabetical order, and then I went right to Ambassador Kennedy. Uh, uh, I'd like to get your impressions on uh, on the summit. Uh, its significance. Well, I share Ambassador Kennedy's uh, enthusiasm for it. Uh, this has been long in coming. Uh, it hasn't been easy, in part because democracy has been quite weak as an institution in Central Asia. And presidents of the United States uh, and European leaders often uh, are concerned about not appearing to be too close to dictatorships. So that's held back some of this high-level engagement. But Central Asia has become a pretty strategic place now, wedged between China, Russia, Afghanistan, uh, Iran, and Turkey. And so I think this has heightened interest in the, in the West, and certainly in the United States, about paying closer attention. The more proximate cause has been uh, concern about access to 
uh, rare and other minerals that are necessary for uh, moving to uh, electric vehicles and other technologies that can reduce uh, dependence on fossil fuels. Uh, Central Asia has a lot of those minerals, and so I think that has been one uh, interesting uh, issue recently. Uh, and then with regard, regard to Kazakhstan, which I know better than the others, two issues have been important. Uh, one is that Kazakhstan has really been an exemplar performer on nuclear nonproliferation over the years. Uh, it had a huge nuclear arsenal and a nuclear weapon test site in the Soviet Union, and it's uh, given that up. It had a largest anthrax factory in the world that's been dismantled through a U.S. non-Luger program. And Kazakhstan most recently has agreed to be the um, uh, storage facility of last resort for low-enriched uranium uh, in case any country has uh, difficulty uh, accessing a reliable uh, supply of uranium fuel for its uh, reactors. And then the other issue has been oil in the Caspian area. Uh, Kazakhstan has a huge amount, uh, which was really only developed after the Soviet Union collapsed because of Western technology. Chevron and Exxon uh, are the largest participants in that. And that is light oil, which is especially prized for aviation fuel and other things. And so that has continued to be important as a source of supply, uh, even as uh, some uh, parts of the uh, market uh, for uh, energy, if you will, are shifting to other sources of energy. Uh, thank you. Ambassador Malloy, your impressions of the summit? Well, actually, I think this was huge in terms of face. Probably the biggest deliverable was just getting into the room and getting their pictures taken. That was so important. It's amazing that this disparate group of people with so many issues amongst themselves were able to come together and do this. I think that's great. It's variable geometry. The country I know best, Kyrgyzstan, doesn't have the massive energy deposits that they can sell to the West. Um, they didn't inherit a lot of the, the goodies that others did when the Soviet Union broke up. So what they have to offer basically was to be the shining light of democracy in the region and also high-level technical skills, something you can do over the Internet. For them, the single most important outcome of this meeting was the focus on business and investment. That's what they need to really thrive. They've managed to survive, but they want to do more than that. Um, and I'm encouraged to see that they have a, an IT delegation going to Utah next week to the Silicon Slope Conference, because that's really the way they need to go. That said, in terms of business, they've created some problems for themselves. The prosecution of the previous Comptor company um, has had a chilling effect on business international investment in this country. Um, and also they've been backsliding on democracy. So there, there's some homework that the country itself needs to do in order to fully gain from these new initiatives. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Um, you know, and you mentioned that the focus seemed to be a, a little bit different at this particular summit. Um, uh, Ambassador Courtney, we were speaking before uh, the podcast that security has, has really been kind of the backbone of U.S. Central Asian ties ever since, uh, you know, 9-11 happened. But now, the, of course, the U.S. doesn't have any forces in Afghanistan. They're still an over-the-horizon policy, but security is maybe not quite 
as important in U.S. Central Asian relations as it has been until up to the time that the U.S. forces vacated Afghanistan. So first, if you could say a little bit about the security cooperation between them as it is today, but but also, uh, you know, as you mentioned, there's minerals and Ambassador Malloy just mentioned uh, transportation issues. Did, did the focus, is the focus shifting or is it more balanced security and also these other trade and transportation issues? Uh, the focus uh, is indeed uh, shifting because the substantial effort to support uh, U.S. and coalition troops in Afghanistan uh, with logistical support, that demand, of course, is not there now. So it actually focuses more attention now on the relative strengths of the Central Asian countries and the capacity of those countries to work with uh, the West, uh, the outside, the international market to take advantage of those. And I think, too, the, the countries of Central Asia are aware that they haven't made the kind of progress that many of the other former Soviet countries have made. And there's concern that if they are, are seen to be left behind, that they will be more vulnerable to regional pressures from Russia, China, uh, or Iran, or, or others. So I think the idea of modernization is becoming more important in Central Asia as a priority, uh, but at the same time, they're trying to moder- uh, modernize without liberalizing the political system. And that's uh, an uneasy combination uh, to do. Uh, so I think we're likely to see Central Asia uh, moving forward as an area which uh, is going to be experimenting with uh, different ways of trying to uh, modernize. And uh, in Kazakhstan, for example, there's some efforts to liberalize while at the same time keeping a pretty firm grip on democratic expressions of democratic values and things like that. Uh, so it's, uh, it's an awkward time in some respects, uh, but the uh, Western, I think the West sees Central Asia now as more important in part because of the challenges that both China and Russia, as well as Iran, are undergoing. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me just follow up real quick with something, too. Um, let's talk transportation for just one second. Uh, a subsidiary of Westinghouse actually signed a deal with Kazakhstan to help develop uh, and improve its the railway system in Kazakhstan. This is very important if we're talking about the middle corridor, right? Everyone wants to see the Russian corridor replaced, oh, the middle corridor opened up. Well, Kazakhstan is the only country in Central Asia that borders China and has a Caspian port at the same time. How important is that, you know, th- this facet of, of what appears to be a new a new area of U.S.-Kazakh relations? Uh, well, the middle quarter is is particularly important. And that is both from the standpoint of of the multimodal transportation that you just referred to going over to Caspian and then going on a barge across, uh, but also the railway system. Uh, so the railway that goes from Western China uh, up through Kazakhstan and Russia to Europe has become significantly more important uh, now there's a greater competition, if you will, with uh, shipping routes in terms of for things that need to be reaching markets in a timely way. So, for example, there was a lo- train load of laptop computers that went from China to Europe. Well, laptops need to be uh, need to reach markets fairly soon, and shipping by ocean may be a little bit slow for that. So there are some elements of that middle quarter that could be really important. Uh, we know from our own experience in the United States 
that when we developed the transcontinental railway, it wasn't really just the shipping from the east to the far west that made the difference. It was all the enterprises along the way that were able to make use of that uh, that railway. For Kazakhstan, the real challenge is now to take a fuller advantage of the uh, improved transportation uh, routes to get its uh, uh, goods and, and agricultural supplies, meat, other things uh, to market. Okay, thank you. And I want to keep going from east to west here, so I'll bring you in, Ambassador Malloy. You know, Kyrgyzstan, now this is one of the things that the Kyrgyz president actually advertised and said, you know, that we can work. We want to be part of this transportation route. I was surprised a, a couple of years ago. I was doing research and I found out that the, no rail, no new railway track had been laid in Kyrgyzstan since indep- uh, independence. Uh, that's changed in the last 18, 20 months. Um, but um, you know, wh- where where is Kyrgyzstan on this transportation route? I say they want to get in, uh, but how possible is that for them to be part of the middle corridor? Well, they need the investment. I mean, there's no internal angel who can come and and actually do the building. So they would be looking for ties. And, you know, know, it's a terrifically mountainous country and the railroad system sort of snakes in and out of Kyrgyzstan and into Kazakhstan and into Uzbekistan. It also requires a lot of cooperation. So I don't have any specifics on, on projects that are ongoing, but I know it's been a huge problem for them in terms of supplies. Mainly, they're brought in by road, and the roads are not in great shape either. But they would need to improve their rail system if they wanted to be a full participant in this. Um, What you may see happen is the Chinese, as they have in a number of other countries, such as uh, Turkmenistan, will come in with a, a deal to improve infrastructure. But these deals, in effect, don't start paying off to the individual country until all the costs are paid back. So I know that's been an issue with the Turkmen and and the pipelines. Um, They don't start seeing the money for a very long time. So I'm not sure that's the right answer for railroads. Uh, You have any confidence that this Chinese, China, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan railway is finally going to get built? I wouldn't really say yay or nay. It, It all depends. Things in that region happen almost immediately when suddenly somebody wants it to happen and they take decades when it's not considered advantageous. Um, so I don't think I'm qualified to answer that question. Okay. I was just, I'm curious, do you see any U.S. role in developing the railway network in Kyrgyzstan? Oh, if there was a U.S. company involved, such as Westinghouse in Kazakhstan, one of the best things the U.S. government can do is provide discounted uh, or free risk insurance, because that's the single biggest impediment for Western investment, because it's done by our private businesses. We don't have an entity in the United States, um, such as they do in other countries, where it's actually that government investing in that entity. So business risk insurance is going to be huge in that. Uh, Ambassador Kennedy, you know, Turkmenistan has been billing itself as a, a hub, a natural hub for the, the Eurasian continent. They have a bunch of different terms they use for this. You know, but, but and, and Sirdar President Sirdar Berdimukhamedov had mentioned he wants to get in on this transportation too. But how realistic is that given the situation in Turkmenistan? I mean, it's got the Caspian ports. They just spent a lot of money developing the Caspian port. Uh, and they have a railway system and a highway system that they've been developing. Um, where are they on the trans the middle corridor? 
Well, you know, I hate to sort of go back to oil and gas because I think we really are trying to do a much broader thing. I will note that uh, the foreign minister uh, not so long ago made an announcement about you know their interest in developing um, transport uh, uh, across the Caspian, something that the U.S. had long worked on. But again, I think that the important thing is shifting to the new economy. The sort of the green economy was very much uh, uh, in there. And when we talk about this middle corridor and connectivity, bricks and mortar is very important. I don't want to discount that, but. Uh, I think the U.S. can also play a big role in sort of the, the 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 less tangible aspects of a middle corridor, and that is things like helping develop uh, more sensible um, customs and other you know regimes that govern trade and connectivity. And when I look at the um, sort of the, the the three sort of you know major new initiatives in this. They're all linked in a way. I mean, one, you have the Partnership for Global Investment in Infrastructure, a G7 initiative uh, unveiled about two years ago that has a new uh, this new push for Central Asia uh, focused on this critical min- uh, minerals dialogue that, that Bill had started off with. But they also talk about, you know, infrastructure in general. And again, when I infrastructure, I don't mean just things like rail or ports. They are vital. But also uh, in terms of sort of the human uh, and legal infrastructure that goes to it. So, okay, the PGI initiative was one. The uh, alluded to earlier, this USAID connectivity uh, ministerial that will take place in October. Three, there's um, uh, an initiative to develop a regional business platform. I mean, we have very active, or reasonably active, U.S. business uh, uh, chambers of with all of these countries. But this would be a new thing. And again, one of the things that the U.S. is phenomenal at is aging and mobilizing private capital. We talk a lot about BRI, the China thing, which which is those are all loans. Uh, those have been a lot of big, splashy and important um, building projects, but they're loans. I mean, we all know the problems of, of debt traps and so on. Um, but what again, what the U.S. can do is mobilize capital, uh, mobilize technology. We are still world leaders in this. Now, you mentioned Turkmenistan. Yes. Uh, that's always the, the most difficult. Uh, when I was in Turkmenistan, Niazov disliked multilateral diplomacy. Uh, he always preferred bilateral channels. So again, this has been an evolution very much of Turkmenistan. So got to keep working at it. But I think this is indeed a promising uh, new uh, departure. Mm, thank you. When President Biden in his statement uh, talks about energy security, um, well, what does that mean in terms of Central Asian United States relations? What is energy security? Well, I will just, I mean, I think we all have, can pop in here. I will just say that I noticed in, in the statements, one of the, the phrases that popped out at me, is it's something that has been central to our policy from the beginning, and that's enhance and diversify energy supplies. We talked about the shift to a green economy. Uh, again, this uh, focus on critical minerals, um, that's that's vital. And before this new initiative for a critical minerals uh, dialogue, I remember hearing some time ago that the U.S. Geological Survey had uh, um, offered to do a mineral survey for, for Kazakhstan. I'm not sure if this has been done. Um, ideally, we can offer these services to other countries. Again, this is world-class technology. 
and we've all seen with COVID, with other things, um, you know, tariffs, uh, wars, and so on, the need to diversify and secure supply chains. I mean, these countries themselves were hit very hard by COVID, as, as was the world. They've also been affected by sanctions on Russia. So they, I think, understand very much the need to enhance and diversify. Kazakhstan, Bill knows this better than anyone, has been affected by the Russians, uh, you know, I think claiming that they had to to uh, uh, check on the 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 CPC pipe export pipeline of Kazakhstan through which I think I don't know 80 90% of their exports flow uh the black sea has been uh insurance rates have skyrocketed because of Russia's illegal war in Ukraine so I think all these countries very much understand the need uh for energy security Ambassador Malloy, uh, you know, what energy security in Kyrgyzstan's case, and especially green energy, I mean, I know that President Chaparov had mentioned something about hydropower, but given the uh, the severe consequences of, of climate change that are already evident in Central Asia, hydropower seems to be short-term a solution. So what, what can the U.S. do to engage with, with some of these with mountainous countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan for energy security and the green energy? One of the things that needs to be looked at rather quickly is the green energies. For instance, solar. Uh, there's, even though it's bitterly cold there all through the winter, it's also very sunny. Um, and especially these remote areas um, really don't have the, the basic utility connections. So getting in more solar and also getting in um, connectivity, internet, all run on these either solar or some of the um, hybrid battery things that are coming out now. I remember when I was at the Department of Energy, they had small cells that could power an entire village. So if we could use our national labs to connect with the um, Kyrgyz on the best options for these remote communities, that would be ideal. The other thing is energy security for Kyrgyzstan very much hinges on their cooperation with Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. It's a regional discussion. Um, I'm sure you remember the many years when the Uzbeks and the previous administration would cut off the gas in the middle of the winter. So getting these countries to really start cooperation on energy and its links to water, um, which is very important to uh, Uzbekistan, is critical. Um, and there is a role for the United States in there. We have the technology. You never know if there's enough capacity in Kyrgyzstan. It might be an ideal place to start creating um, solar cells right in country. So and not for export necessarily, but to get them going. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, Ambassador Courtney, I'd like to get your take on this. When when President Biden talks about energy security for Central Asia, um, you know, what exactly is he talking about? And, and is there is he kind of helping out our European allies? I mean, I'm, I'm in Prague, obviously. So I know that a lot of the Kazakh oil that goes through the Russian Black Sea port at Novorossiysk um, ends up actually in European countries. Um, so is this, is uh, Biden kind of got half an eye on the EU and, and those countries when he talks about energy security? Uh, yes, I think that's correct, uh, Bruce. Uh, energy security really is a, is a global uh, activity uh, because uh, ships can't go through the Bosphorus that have more than um, 150,000 tons or something like that. Uh, those are relatively small ships, and so they tend to go to ports in the Mediterranean, you know, European ports especially. 
the United States and Europe try to work together pretty closely on Central Asian matters. The Europeans are much closer, of course, but U.S. has very large oil companies that are active there, and the U.S. is taking the lead on the non-proliferation issues. Uh, I think looking forward, uh, there's still going to be a demand for the the high-quality light oil that uh, Kazakhstan uh, produces. So, for example, uh, Chevron and Exxon, they've been undergoing uh, modernization at Tanguy's that costs over $30 billion, despite the fact that you know, global demand for oil now is uh, probably going to be growing at a, a slower rate because of the high quality of that oil. Uh, so I think we're likely to see the U.S. and Europe continue to have an interest in Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan oil reaching uh, global markets, but especially those closer to Europe. Okay, thank you. Uh, and we have reached the halfway point, so it's time to remind that we are talking about recent the recent summit of the U.S. and Central Asian presidents. And my guests are Eileen Malloy, former U.S. ambassador to Kyrgyzstan, William Courtney, former U.S. ambassador to Kazakhstan, and Laura Kennedy, former U.S. ambassador to Turkmenistan. Let's talk about a little, some of the challenges in this in the U.S. Central Asian relationship. Um, it's obviously it's good that all the presidents were sitting around the same table, um, but we, as we've kind of mentioned, hinted at a few times, the situation in Central Asia in terms of governance uh, is is kind of headed in what the U.S. would regard as the wrong direction. Uh, how, com- how much of a complication, I'll start with you, Ambassador Malloy, because it's especially pronounced in Kyrgyzstan, how much of a complication is it for the U.S. when kind of setting, resetting relations with Central Asia to have to deal with con- the countries when their uh, the regimes are actually consolidated in their power? It's it's huge. The the Kyrgyzstan is is very much in my heart. I love the place. I love the people. I don't love the direction it's going in right now, and I don't want to offend. But the reality is that they have a tendency to say the right things in media and on an international stage, but when it comes down to day to day implementation the disorder and chaos of, of true democracy is very unsettling for the Kyrgyz. Uh, the fact that people are allowed to criticize the government in public in a democracy is, runs counter to their culture. And also, there is a desire to, for the, whoever is in charge to benefit financially from that job. Um, and to protect that and their extended family, and it's difficult. At the same time, the government in Kyrgyzstan is facing popular demands that there be some benefit to the people, some improvement in their, in their lifestyle. And there hasn't been, really, except for the elite in the city. The people living out in the rural areas are struggling terribly. So there's a certain amount of popularism that they're dealing with. So it's going to be really difficult for the Kyrgyz government to open up full connectivity and accept the the liberties that come along with that in terms of human rights and open media. Um, it's not going to be easy for them to do that. 
Okay, thank you. Um, Ambassador Courtney, in Kazakhstan's case, um, you know, they, they're right, they changed the constitution on paper. It looks like they transferred some of the powers to the legislative branch from the executive branch. Uh, in fact, the legislative branch is dominated by presidential supporters, so it really made no change at all. There's been no adequate investigation of the events, uh, the violence in January 2022. The Kazakh uh, tax service just posted a list of what, what appear to be similar to the foreign agents law in, in Russia, uh, organizations in Kazakhstan that are funded by foreign agencies. How does the U.S. engage right now, trying to, trying to have constructive relations with Kazakhstan? How, how does the U.S. engage with Kazakhstan, knowing all these things are still present there? The U.S. has constructive engagement with Kazakhstan in some specific areas, uh, nuclear nonproliferation being one, energy being another, and now with the uh, increased interest in uh, critical and rare earth uh, minerals, uh, that's likely to be another area of engagement. There's a lot of U.S. investment in Kazakhstan, but there is concern, of course, that uh, the change from the Nazarbayev era to current government hasn't resulted in significant uh, political liberalization. There is discussion about this. Uh, It is clear that a number of elites in Kazakhstan want to have more open society, uh, but the government has been able to maintain pretty strong control over the political life of the country. One thing that's interesting is that since those uh, since those demonstrations in January uh, 2022, there have been persistent small-scale demonstrations throughout the period, and then some larger ones. Uh, the demonstrations are by often just by ordinary people. A lot of them are women. Women have really taken a leadership role in expressing uh, civil society values in Kazakhstan. Uh, and this has been, a, if you will, a, a thorn in the side of the government that is going to lead to some further consequences down the road. We just don't know when or how this is going to happen. But it's a kind of an unstable situation. The Kazakhstanis want more freedom, from more independence. And if you go back in Kazakh history, the ethnic Kazakh history, you know, the nomadic uh, uh, lifestyle was one in which people made their own independent decisions, uh, small groups made decisions. So there was a strong tradition of individualism in Kazakhstan, and that's not so compatible with a repressive society. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if we see some evolution in Kazakhstan. And President Takayev has said he wants to see this in the direction of a, a somewhat more liberal uh, society, but uh, less, I should probably say somewhat less repressive uh, government and somewhat more liberal society. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ambassador Kennedy, if there's two countries in Central Asia that people could say are firmly under the Russian thumb, it would have to be Tajikistan and Turkmenistan, right? They are, they, they're both scared to do anything that might anger Moscow. How does the U.S. approach these governments and try to get better ties with them, knowing uh, that these governments, um, you know, like I said, are, are so so under the influence of Russia that it's hard for them to actually make any kind of overtures to a country like the United States? Well, you know, uh, good question, uh, Bruce. And I think, again, the approach that that President Biden and this uh, uh, his team took in this uh uh, C5 plus one uh, ministerial gets to the heart of that. And and uh, Don Liu, I think the assistant secretary spoke specifically to this in his briefing after the um, the meeting. And that is, we recognize that these countries, as Bill had mentioned, these are, you know, 
bordering China, Russia, Iran. You know, it's a it's a difficult neighborhood, as the 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 cliche phrase is. Uh, we don't ask them to choose. We recognize that, you know, they have areas that they they do cooperate with. I mean, you look at the uh, the high dependence of, for example, uh, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan on, you know, the, the migration um, and the remittances from abroad, some of the probably about the highest percentage wise in the world. So we're not asking them to choose. Um, we're just seeking areas where we can work with them. And uh, so I think that's uh, that's the way to go. We recognize the limits on them. We're not asking them to choose. We just treat them with respect uh, and look for areas of, of mutual cooperation. And of course, recognizing that there's always been areas we don't agree on. Um, you alluded to challenge with, um, with Turkmenistan in particular. So, as I say, uh, we try and 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 you know find areas of mutual interest. But Russia itself, frankly, um, which of course has been historically uh, much involved in the area, is very much distracted these days, given its ruinous war on uh, Ukraine, uh, a country that was not mentioned in any of the public documents that I've seen. But frankly, you look at the opening uh, uh, elements in any of the documents I have seen, and they talk about respect uh, for sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence, and their unwavering commitment to UN principles. To me, that means uh, Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, implicitly. So I think these countries. Uh, um, all of which have, have tried to practice what the Kazakhs have coined long ago, multi-vector diplomacy. Uh, it's difficult for, for many of them because, as you know, there are real vulnerabilities. But we have things to offer. We have mutual areas. And again, we're not asking them to choose. We're recognizing them as independent players. Um, uh, instead of, as I, you know, what used to drive me crazy when people would talk about the great game, uh, because that reduced these countries to being sort of pawns um, and stripped them of their agency. These are these are five countries that may be new uh, states, but that, uh, as you know, are ancient civilizations. So, um, you know, still groping for their identities. You know, I think Bill alluded to the troubles in Kazakhstan. 2022 was a really rough year for the area. Uh, I mean, the troubles in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, big protests in Karakalpakstan, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan having very serious, you know, you know, conflicts between them. So uh, a rough area. But again, I think they recognize that we have uh, real uh, ways we can help and we have a decades long track record of um, assisting whether it's technology uh, offering advice you know on human rights governance um, whole host of, of areas that's a long-winded answer sorry no that's fine and, and thank you you helped me with my transition we're coming toward the end of the program so you know, a lot of media and think tanks tend to view this Central Asia, unfortunately, as, as kind of like a zero-sum game for, for foreign influence. You know, the, the, when, when U.S. Secretary of State Blinken goes through and offers $25 million, you know, the immediate response from some some quarters are, are that, you know, $25 million is nothing. Uh, China invests billions. Russia spends all kinds of billions. But Russia and China border Central Asia. Uh, you know, the U.S. is on the other side of the world. So is what happened at the summit... Is this a sign of like the a maturing in the relationship between Central Asia and the United States? The security factor is not so important. Are they are they reaching a more realistic 
level of cooperation now that that uh, both sides have 30 years of experience dealing with each other. Uh, Ambassador Courtney? Uh, so with regard to Kazakhstan, cooperation has been very close from the beginning. Kazakhstan was an exemplar in cooperation with the, the international community, the United States, non-proliferation uh, issues, and that's continued for three decades. And then Kazakhstan attracted the first really large U.S. energy investment anywhere in the former Soviet Union, and the Chevron investment uh, at Tanguiz. And then with Kazakhstan's emphasis on ethnic uh, religious uh, uh, tolerance from the, from the outset, uh, that's also been quite compatible with uh, U.S. policy and OSCE priorities as well. So we've had a pretty strong relationship with Kazakhstan. Uh, the main concern has been political life has been too restricted uh, and uh, there was too much corruption. And there has been now, of course, a correction of some of that uh, with the change from the Nazarbayev era to the, the Takayev era, uh, if you will. Uh, so I, I think we're likely to see a continuation of close ties. But Kazakhstan's situation now is changing with with Russia being more isolated from the international community, with more sanctions being applied to Russia, and with China undergoing now financial risks that are greater than uh, it has seen in quite some time now, and likely slower economic growth, those pressures from those two countries are likely to constrain Kazakhstan, and therefore it may seek uh, closer ties with the West. Uh, but to have closer ties, it really needs to liberalize uh, society and politics uh, a bit. And I think when we see the very strong support from the West for Ukraine in this, uh, in this current war, it is because Ukraine has had three decades of democratic development with multiple uh, free and fair elections and governments uh, voted out of office. Uh, we just haven't seen that in, uh, in a country like Kazakhstan, for example. So I think improving political life in Kazakhstan is going to be quite important for its future relations with the West. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ambassador Kennedy, do we have something of a reset from this, this summit? Are we seeing some, uh, the new direction for U.S.-Central Asian relations? I would not call it a reset. I, I mean, you yourself talked about this being a maturation uh, of our relations. Um, uh, I think it's, it's, it's bringing it to a new stage because, again, this is a, a presidential level. But as I say, I think of it as a maturation. Uh, and, and again, the U.S. is uh, a global power. We have uh, a huge assets to offer, but also in terms of economy and all of these things, we do we do see uh, we're very conscious of issues like climate change, the environment. So it's not just about getting more energy. It's about, you know, taking, you know, recognizing the real the global challenges. So, uh, but again, uh, I hope this frankly can be a tradition. I would love to see a president visit the area. But again, it's not just, uh, say, a, a visits. It's a whole network of relations. Um, and I think um, we really do need regional solutions for the area. So I'm delighted to see the Central Asians themselves increasingly recognize this and develop and mature their own instruments, even though, again, they've got real problems. I alluded to the, you know, the Syrian border issue, but at least the, the presence met twice um, in the last couple of days in the fringes of 
of uh, the UN um, uh, high level um, meeting. So uh, again, I hope I hope it does lead to to lots more high level activity. But I think um, this does build on on decades of U.S. investment in the area. Okay, thank you. And final word goes to Ambassador Malloy. You see anything new out of the summit? New focus? Yes, yes, definitely. I think I speak for Kyrgyzstan mainly that there was a feeling that during the conflict in Afghanistan, they were treated as an important partner. They had a role to play. And then when we pulled out of Afghanistan, it was like they didn't matter anymore. So this is really important because for the first time, the President Biden, the U.S. government, was speaking to this group of Central Asian leaders on issues nearest and dearest to their heart, their own regional security, how that plays into the world, connectivity, water, um, things like that, that have been just existential issues for these countries. So the first wave of U.S. activity back in the 90s, when we all were at our posts out there, was very much focused on how we replicate the U.S. experience in Central Asia. How do we create a free market economy? How do we create a thriving democracy? But this approach is more, how do we work together on these global issues? I personally feel the disputes over water and the climate change-driven refugee flows are going to be the two most important issues coming up in the next 10 to 20 years. And very much on the minds of the Central Asia government. So I see this as a shift, not a restart, a whole different approach. And I just hope all of the Central Asian governments and our government follow through on this with real interaction. Okay, thank you all. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I, we could go on with this conversation for a long time, and I, I have a feeling you're all going to be back on the show real soon because uh, there's always always something going on in U.S. relations in Central Asia. Uh, and who knows, may, it might be the visit, the first visit of a Serbian U.S. president to the region. Um, but thank you all very much for being on the program. Uh, so thank you, William Courtney former U.S. Ambassador to Kazakhstan, Laura Kennedy, former U.S. Ambassador to Turkmenistan, and Eileen Malloy, former U.S. Ambassador to Kyrgyzstan. And a big thank you, as always, to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. And a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or the Central Asia and Focus newsletter by visiting Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty's website at rfarl.org. Thank you very much, and we'll be back next week. <laughs>